Hello, Jordan. Happy New Year. And the same to you, Sean. How are you doing? You were back in Canada, right, for the holidays? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, a sorely needed vacation. Um, it was actually my first Christmas or New Year's back home in many, many years. And it was really relaxing. Thanks for asking. Now, before I ask you about your break, um, I'll just introduce you to our listeners. You are Jordan Allen, an editor with the Japan Times, and we've worked together for about five years now, yeah? Yep, that's all true. All right. For New Year's, you were up in Toyama Prefecture, which was hit by that massive magnitude 7.6 earthquake at 4.10 p.m. on January 1st. Yes, that's right. For New Year's Day, I was in the eastern half of Toyama. If you look at the map, it's towards the Niigata side of the prefecture. Okay. I went with my partner. We were sort of hoping for, you know, a few days of nice, quiet time, watch a bit of Kohaku Tagase and that kind of thing, you know, typical New Year's fair. We got it up until the earthquake came on, on New Year's Day. And I mean, New Year's Day itself, it was really, really beautiful sunshine. We went to the, the next town over. We went to see a, a family friend to go and have lunch and mm -hmm. kind of made the most of it and decided to walk back, which it was about a 90-minute walk all along the coastal road. And, you know, you can stop at points there and look out and you're looking at the Noto Peninsula, you know, you're looking right across Toyama Bay mm. and you can see it kind of there in the distance. So we kind of got back into the house about, it probably would have been about 3.45 and kind of sat down on the sofa to, you know, chill out after that walk. And then the first earthquake came, you know, the sort of precursor to the big one. Mm. You know, you've you've lived in Japan long enough as well. You know what the different kind of earthquake feelings are like. And this this first one, it was to me, it was just kind of a one big bang, you know, like a big jolt. And it was enough to kind of, you know, you you look at each other and think that was something, but it wasn't kind of a long shaking kind of thing. Right. And so after that, my partner kind of went off into another room in the house to go and do something or other. And I was just kind of sat on the sofa chilling out and, and it, it came. It was kind of no big build up to it or anything. It was just, you're sat there and then the next second, suddenly everything around you is just shaking and swaying and swirling and it's terrifying. Huh. I could hear things behind me in, in other rooms smashing and I was kind of shouting for my partner, you know, just for us to, to get out, get out of the house, which, you know, looking into it later on, th that is not the advice, you know, mm. when, when the earthquake's going on, you don't run outside, you get under something solid and you wait it out, you know, and then you make your way outside once it stops. But I think it was just, you know, fear takes over and I just, all I wanted to do was just bolt out of the house and the phone alarm is going off, you know, so you've got this, again, for anybody who's, who's not lived in Japan, that, that in itself is, to me, is terrifying. It's this whooping sound that just comes out of your phone and it's shouting to you, you know, yeah, earthquake, yeah. earthquake, which is accompanied by the text warning on the screen. And then the television's kind of giving its warning as well. And then out in the fields in this part of Toyama, there are kind of speakers, you know, on poles in the fields and they kind of carry the local tannoy system. Right. It's very common in Japan to have these kinds of like loudspeaker systems in the streets, right? And they kind of give announcements. Um, sometimes they do chimes to tell kids mm. when to go home uh, when it's kind of late and they should be at home instead of outside playing. That's right. And I mean, this one usually gives a, a noon announcement chime, you okay. know, but this, this was it's hard to describe what it was saying because it was so tinny, you know, you, you can't even really tell, but something's going on. And kind of, you know, when it stopped shaking, I found which room my partner had gone to, located her, and we kind of, we grabbed our coats and quickly went to do a, a walk around of the house to make sure that nothing, you know, nothing was damaged because 
you know, it felt big. You didn't know what had happened. And mm-hmm. as we're walking around the house, then we got the first of the aftershocks, which was big enough, you know, to feel the, the ground swaying. And we could see neighbors in one of the houses nearby, you know, kind of bolting for their cars and making a run for it. So it was pretty frightening. And then to get back inside and see that the television's kind of flashing the tsunami warning to picture it, there's a, a little map of Japan on the screen and all the way up the Sea of Japan coast, it's flashing different colors depending on the severity of the warning. And for us, it was, it was flashing red, which was kind of the second highest level. At that point, you make a decision as to what you're going to do. Did you evacuate because of the tsunami? No, um, it was in my mind and my partner kind of reasoned and we looked at the television and it was actually 10, 15 minutes after the quake. I think by that time, the first tsunami had already landed and it was lower than was predicted. Right. And when we kind of looked online quickly to see how high above sea level we were, we were 34 meters above sea level or something. So you were. Yeah, so it was kind of, okay, well, I think we'll be all right. And we found out later that apparently the the town center was absolute gridlock of people just running for the mountains in cars, you know, Mm. which is fair play. You know, I mean, for people that have lived here through the big disasters and things, the fact that it's a tsunami warning, it it must trigger something, I think. Memories of having seen what everybody saw, you know, on the television 12 years ago or 13 years ago. Well, I'm glad you weren't hurt. I'm glad you were able to get back to Tokyo. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it's, it's like anything else with these things, you, you reflect on it. And at the time, you didn't know how bad it was. You didn't know whether this tsunami warning was going to affect you or not. And you were terrified. And then when you look at it later, you kind of feel a bit, I don't know what the word is, but you look at how people have suffered genuinely and the impacts and the damage. And yeah, you feel you feel lucky and you feel you feel almost silly for having worried so much yourself at the time. But um, yeah, fortunately, we were okay. Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna, wishing all of our listeners a happy new year for 2024. This being our first show back for the year, however, it has not been smooth sailing for many people in Japan so far. I was visiting my parents in Canada when I saw news of the Noto Peninsula earthquake on television. The earthquake measured a magnitude of 7.6, so just for comparison, the Great East Japan earthquake that hit on March 11, 2011, measured a magnitude 9.1. And the Geospatial Information Authority of Japan has said that the quake actually caused the ground to be uplifted by as much as 4 meters in Wajima, Ishikawa Prefecture. So it was a rough start to 2024 for Japan. Many of you will also know that on January 2nd, a Japanese Coast Guard plane that was set to bring relief supplies to the quake-stricken area collided with a large passenger plane on the runway at Haneda Airport in Tokyo. All 379 people aboard the Japan Airlines flight were evacuated. However, five people on the Coast Guard plane died. As of January 17th, there had been 232 people reported dead as a result of the earthquake. You heard Jordan Allen at the top of the show, and later on we'll speak to writer Alex K.T. Martin, who traveled to the Noto Peninsula a week after the disaster. Before that, we'll hear from Japan Times reporter Karin Kaneko, who was one of the first on our team to head up to the disaster zone. My name is Karin Kaneko. I'm a reporter with the Japan Times. On January 1st, I was at home cooking when I first heard about the earthquake. 
It was New Year's, so there weren't too many reporters in the country. My boss put out a call. I was around and I agreed to go. The Shinkansen was stopped, so I had to fly into Komatsu and got the bus into Kanazawa, which is the capital of the Ishikawa prefecture. I did some reporting there before getting a cab to the more affected areas. I've never been to Ishikawa prefecture before, but I had been meaning to go because I heard all of these like beautiful castles and the culture. It's a really good spot for nature. It's unfortunate that I went for the first time during the earthquake, but I want to go again at some point in the future. So I arrived in the city of Nanao on January 3rd, which was in the disaster zone. But it's not the hardest hit area. It seemed as if none of the homes that I saw escaped the quake or its aftershocks without any damage. I would say maybe 20% or 30% of them were completely flattened. Landslides was just everywhere. And it was really jarring to see the cracks in the roads. Well, I say cracks, but they were much bigger than cracks. And you could even see the pipes coming out of the street. As someone who was kind of first on the scene, it was important for me to get the stories of those people to our readers. One of the stories that I came across actually was that some of the victims of the earthquake weren't allowed to bring their pets into the evacuation shelters. They would just stay out in the hall with their pet on their laps. I think the pets are also like quite shaken by what just happened. I did write a piece on the different organizations that are trying to help. For example, the Ishikawa government is coordinating with groups like the Red Cross and the Central Community Chest of Japan. If you want to help people in Ishikawa at this time, the best thing to do is likely go through them. And of course, if you're living in Japan, this is a good reminder to check up on your own earthquake kit and make sure it's in order. My thanks to Karin for that recounting of her trip to Ishikawa Prefecture. We'll put links to the organizations that she mentioned in her piece in our podcast show notes. And we'll be back after a quick break. We're back with my colleague Alex K.T. Martin. He's a senior writer here at the Japan Times, friend of the pod, and this past week he wrote an article titled Noto is Kind Right Down to Its Soil, A Community's Long Road to Recovery. Alex, I wanted to ask you about that title a little later, but first, we just heard our colleague Karin Kaneko recount her trip up north in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. You went up north a little later, didn't you? Yes, uh, a week later, actually, uh, with Dave. Oh, yeah, that'd be deep dive producer Dave Cortez. Uh, he went up with you and he was able to capture some sound and thoughts from your trip. Here's a snippet of what Dave recorded on your drive up. So uh, we've arrived in Kanazawa and we're taking a uh, highway up towards Wajima. Um, there are roadblocks uh, here and there, so uh, we need to sort of navigate how to get there uh, depending on the road situation. 
we're going to report on uh, the Noto Peninsula earthquake that struck Japan's uh, Noto Peninsula on January 1st. So far, over uh, 120 people have died, with many more missing. That was from a video Dave took that's tacked on to the end of your long-form feature on our website, Alex. The piece itself focuses a lot on the people of Noto and their resilience. So what are the people of Noto like? Well, Sean, um, this was actually the first time I visited Ishikawa Prefecture. Oh, right. Um, or the Noto Peninsula, actually. So um, we were reporting on a disaster. So, you know, it's not your typical <laughs> everyday trip. So, you know, I wouldn't be the best person to describe how the people of Noto are. But, you know, uh, just by uh, my own experience uh, being up there and talking to folks, um, they're very nice. Um, I think a lot of the folks are uh, involved in uh, fishing, in the fishing industry, mm-hmm. because obviously it's a peninsula. Exactly, we saw yeah. many signs of uh, oyster farms here and there uh, okay. as we were driving up north. Um, also, I knew this beforehand, uh, Wajima, that's uh, one of the cities we, we visited, is very famous for its uh, lacquerware called Wajima Nuri. Okay. And that's like a nationally recognized brand. So I'm assuming a lot of folks are uh, uh, involved in that as well. Okay. You often write about conditions in rural Japan, and a lot of your pieces focus on depopulation and the graying of Japanese society, specifically out in the countryside and smaller towns. So given that, I'm guessing there were a lot of elderly Japanese affected by the New Year's quake, yeah? Yes, and I think that's a major issue uh, when disaster strikes these uh, rural countryside areas. Mm. Um, one of the hardest hit cities by the earthquake was uh, Wajima, the city I just mentioned, uh, which faces out onto the Sea of Japan. And the uh, ratio of people who are 65 or older in Wajima stands at around 46%, um, which is much higher than the national average, which is 291 That's something uh, quite important to keep in mind, I think. Mm. I've also seen a lot of reports on collapsed houses that were older and maybe not built in accordance with guidelines that were put in place after the Hanshin earthquake of 1995. Uh, That one was centered on Kobe and killed around 6,000 people. The Guardian's Justin McCurry wrote about this in a piece titled Our Minds Are Blank, How Earthquake Resilient Japan Fails Its Aging Rural Communities. Right. So I think Dave would agree. A lot of the uh, homes we saw on the way up to uh, Noto Peninsula, there were old traditional uh, wooden Japanese houses with uh, tiled roofs. Uh Um, And I think these are the type of homes that were uh, essentially crushed uh, during the big quake. Right. Um, I'm not sure if they were built after the uh, 1995 quake or not. I'm referring to the Hanshin quake. Mm. I'm assuming they're uh, much older than that. So Uh, Who knows, you know, in terms of uh, earthquake resiliency, perhaps some have actually done some renovation, um, but many, I would assume, uh, has no type of system uh, intact in terms of uh, uh, earthquake uh, resiliency. In terms of roads going up, um, this was roughly a week after the the quake hit. Um, It was quite a mess uh, still. Um, Lots of fissures, landslides blocking uh, lanes, uh, potholes, sinkholes. Um, And I think uh, a minimum amount of repair work was already being done to get the cars inside. I think the idea was to uh, have uh, disaster personnel and relief supplies sent up before actually uh, really going in to uh, clean up the roads. Mm. You know what I mean? So they wanted to get something, the the essentials up there before they actually start doing some heavy construction to uh, uh, completely uh, repair the roads. Right, right. So uh, going up there, we uh, there's a national highway called 249. And this essentially sort of uh, runs around the Noto Peninsula uh-huh. from uh, east to west. And uh, to get to cities like Wajima, 
uh, or Suzu, which are the hardest hit, you need to uh, go through the two, go go on the two forty nine by Nanao Bay, going past Nanao City. Okay, and uh, that's what we did. But uh, the problem is uh, all the roads, uh, inland roads. I wouldn't say all of them, but uh, quite a lot of them are damaged to to the extent that uh, they're blocked off. Mm. So even two forty nine was closed off here and there, and uh, it was quite. It was like going on a maze. Actually, you know, you would take a right, there's a roadblock. Take a left, there's a roadblock. Um, take another road. Uh, and someone would, you know, a local resident would sort of wave their hands and say like, you know, you shouldn't go there because, you know, it's going to be uh, blocked off eventually. Mm. So that was a week after the quake. Uh, by the time this pod goes up, it's going to be about three weeks. So I'm assuming the road situation uh, will be improved hopefully quite significantly than the time we went up there. But uh, it was quite, quite a mess. Yeah, let's hope so. Considering the damage you just mentioned, what happened to the people that actually lost their homes? Right. So um, many of them have uh, evacuated to uh, evacuation centers. These are uh, schools, community centers, uh, temples, shrines, anywhere with space that can accommodate uh, people with roofs. Um, And I think the latest uh, toll I saw from a few days ago, around 40% of the residents of uh, Wajima and Suzu are actually in evacuation centers. Right. Uh, most of the aid that's been delivered up north to uh, to the, uh, we call it Okunoto, which is basically uh, inner Noto. Okay. Uh, it refers to uh, Wajima or Suzu or uh, the Noto, Cho town, uh-huh. um, all these uh, uh, municipalities in the Noto Peninsula. So the aid's being uh, delivered to evacuation centers. There are also people who decide to sort of uh, continue living in their homes despite there being no electricity or water. Uh, what they would do is uh, they would perhaps uh, visit the nearest evacuation center to collect some water and some food supplies and take it back to their own place. Okay. Uh, wait for trucks to bring them kerosene for their uh, uh, stove feeders. Um, so it's it's a case-by-case basis. Um, however, uh, there are communities that are completely isolated, mm-hmm. meaning um, there's no direct sort of ground route to uh, get to them. I think this is quite old, but from as of, as of January 10th, um, there were 3,124 people who were isolated up in the Noto Peninsula right. from, I think it was about 22 different uh, municipalities. So what they would do, um, obviously they would uh, live on their supplies, but I think the SDF has been sort of uh, making inroads into these communities to deliver goods directly um, by hand perhaps mm-hmm. uh, or through other means. And I think these uh, the number of isolated communities have uh, drastically gone down. Um, by the time this podcast is out, uh, the number I, I mentioned uh, might be uh, much fewer. So the kinds of the number of people who have been isolated by this quake is likely to have gone down by the time the podcast airs. Yes. Okay. Okay. Or I'm 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 hopeful. I, hopefully that's that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So this lack of access to these villages uh, isn't a problem that's lost on many people who are involved in making uh, decisions. We spoke to Yukio Shiyamano, um, who is a strategic advisor to the uh, tech company SoftBank, uh, which is helping with regard to aid efforts. And he was also uh, the former mayor of Kanazawa, so he knows what the uh, cities are capable of. What did he have to say? Well, he was saying that uh, relying on land routes um, to the more isolated communities is fine uh, during, you know, uh, everyday situations, non-disaster situations. But Mm. at times like these, uh, he said we need to have more sea and air routes or ways to get help to people. Has anyone ever suggested that more of these small, like, difficult-to-access towns may just need to be abandoned permanently? Yeah, I mean, actually, that's a, another big debate that's uh, going on on X or Twitter Okay. Um, right now. I know um, there's many uh, pundits sort of uh, giving their own take on the situation and whether or not uh, this calls for uh, elderly residents in, uh, country, in the countryside to uh, move to bigger cities. 
Um, I think the former governor of Niigata, Mr. Ryuichi Oneyama, uh-huh. um, suggested that as well on Twitter, uh, X, I, I should say, yeah. and that got a lot of response. And it's it's actually a debate that's been ongoing for quite a long time. Um, uh, I think the central government has been uh, pushing the idea to a certain extent, as well as uh, regional municipalities, um, from a disaster prevention standpoint. It's not just earthquakes, right? There's landslides, massive rainfall, uh, storms. Um, and what happens in these situations is obviously these uh, rural villages and hamlets in the countryside, uh, they get isolated. And a lot of the times the, uh, the average age um, of residents in these areas are much higher than you know, people you find in the city. Mm-hmm. Like in Wajima, right? It's what, 46% over yeah. 65. So yeah, it's, it's, I think the Noto Peninsula earthquake could be a trigger uh, for another huge debate on this uh, exact topic. The city itself in Wajima is, is a complete mess. Um, I think 90% of the uh, homes that are got damaged, many are completely uh, crushed, pancaked. You know, when people lose everything, lose any semblance of normality, I think it takes a while for that to sink in. You know, how to regain a uh, sense of norm- normalcy back into their lives, it's going to take a while. So surreal, I think, at this point for many to actually comprehend um, their own situation and how they're going to move forward from here. So. Hopefully um, that kind of sentiment or sense of um, moving ahead will return to the folks up there soon. But then again, it's uh, early January. It's uh, very cold up here. It's going to be at least another few months before our spring approaches. It's going to be a very tough few months for our residents of affected areas. So Alex, while you were up in Noto, you encountered a lot of people. As a seasoned reporter in Japan, and I think you've done reporting in many disaster zones outside of Japan, how do you approach people to get them to tell you their story? Like, I'm kind of curious if you take a different approach here than you would in another country. Um, I wouldn't say I would. I take a different approach uh, depending on which country I am in. For example, I covered uh, the typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines back in 2013, but uh, uh-huh. it's not like I go down there and I have a different persona when I approach right. people. <laughs> okay. um, I think... One thing I would uh, be careful about is not to intrude too much on their personal space. Um, disaster victims typically, you know, they're living out of emergency shelters. They don't have homes. Um, privacy is something they've lost. So uh, you don't want to be a reporter just going up, you know, right up in, into the, into their faces and like, you know, asking uh, questions here, right and left. Mm. Um, so I would take my time. I would sort of scatter around, um, you know, who is where. Um uh, see if whether or not you know they might want to talk or not. Typically, I would think um, from my experience, uh, right after a disaster, um, a lot of the victims are actually willing to talk. I think it's a way of clearing their mind and sort of uh, putting things into perspective. And I think talking to people outside of the, uh, the disaster zone could facilitate that to a certain extent. Mm. Um, but then again, if you if you're talking to someone who lost many family members, um, the trauma might be uh, too deep at that point um, for them to actually want to talk to you. So it's really a matter of instincts, I think. And I try not to sort of uh, go up into people's faces. I mean, that's the last thing I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. These are people who, you know, who's, who are suffering. Um, it's not our job to uh, uh, make their suffering even greater. Right. I think yeah. it's our job to listen to them. Um, so I try not to be over-sympathetic. Um, I just try to be level-headed, um, kind, uh, courteous. Um, and if, if I sense that they don't want to talk about something, um, I would try not to go deep into that unless uh, I feel that, you know, this is something that uh, this person might actually really want to talk about. 
but but he, he or she might be hesitating, if you know what I mean. Okay. It's a very d- delicate matter, obviously. Um, right, right. And I think the Japanese people are, the, you know, I mean, I think the stereotypical Japanese person that uh, um, Westerners might think, you know, are the, these shy, shy folks who aren't that uh, open about talking about their own experience and stuff like that. But I don't think that's actually really a case. Uh, you know, I went, when I was in Tohoku after 311, um, I talked to a lot of people and they were very open about their own experience. Uh, very mm-hmm. kind, actually. That's one thing that, that really amazes me. You know, these disaster victims, um, you know, they, they've lost everything, but they're so incredibly kind. You know, I mean, they would they would offer you, you know, a cup of uh, a hot tea or something when they don't have anything else to sort of offer. And uh, I'm like, you know, no, I don't, I don't need that. But, you know, <laughs> it's it's amazing. I think these disasters, they, you know, it's horrible, but at the same time, it sort of creates this sense of community. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's the, uh, that's how people sort of try to move forward. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but uh, that's a little bit about my own take, I think. I guess a week after the disaster, there are still rescue efforts going on. Um, but especially by the time this podcast comes out, people will be trying to make sense of how they're going to move forward. So in your piece, you spoke to Ryotaro Nakashima, who is the 35-year-old president and chief brewer at the Nakashima Sake Brewery, based in Noto. Right, he's the eighth-generation head of the brewery, um, and it brews a particular brand of sake known as uh, Noto Suehiro. Mm. And uh, we met him up in Wajima. Most of his business, the uh, the homes that... Uh, and the buildings that uh, he runs were uh, pretty much demolished, mm-hmm. um, except for one section. He had a building that he built after 2007 when a, another quake hit Noto. So that's that's where he's actually living now. Um, he made a small bed, two small beds out of uh, cardboard boxes and a futon. So there's like one room that's kind of earthquake-proof, yeah. and that's the one that... Exactly. Last. <laughs> okay, yeah. Right, yeah. right. And... Uh, very kind person. Um, he had his apron with his uh, sake brand uh, logo on it. Uh-huh. Um, it was as if, you know, he could just go right back to work and start making sake. But then, you know, you look behind him and it's just basically crushed homes all over the place, like right. a wasteland, right? And yeah, so, you know, he lost his business once uh, in 2007 when I, as I mentioned, another 6.9 magnitude uh, earthquake at Noto. Uh-huh. And his uh, business got uh, crushed. Happened again, right? <laughs> and, and it's only been like 16 or 17 years uh, since the last disaster. Um, so he was at a quite a, quite at a loss um, in terms of uh, what he wants to do and what he should do and what he can do. Um, I think the idea is to, you know, uh, get his business back up again eventually. Uh-huh. Um, but then, you know, his concern was like Noto is known as a, a very seismically active region. Um, another big one could uh, hit anytime soon. So the point is, you know, if he rebuilds his home, does he want to have just a regular home or does he probably want some extra reinforcement in terms of uh, uh, earthquake resiliency and things like that, right? right? So a lot to think about. Um, He's told me there were three tons of rice lying in the rubble still that uh, he wants to salvage. This was to make sake, right? Uh So many things on his mind. um, And I think it's going to take some time for him to sort of... uh, I think, grasp the uh, scale of things and start looking for a path to uh, revive his uh, business. Do you think you'll get back in touch with him at some point to see, you know, what he finally decided to do? Of course. um, That's uh, what we do. When a disaster strikes, we go up there, we talk to people, and then maybe after six months or a year or three years or five years, you you go back and see uh, how these people are coping with their lives. 
Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, drinking his uh, uh, Noto Suehiro brand of sake at some point. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he has a very uh, nice uh, homepage, which is it's stopped, right? It's, it's, it hasn't been updated. It doesn't has yeah. no information about the disaster because he doesn't have inter, you know proper internet connection yet, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping that one day you know I can report on uh, the revival of his business. Um, and the other folks too that, you know, uh, we talked to, um, during this trip and uh, see how they're coping and how, um, hopefully they've recovered. So Nakashima was being assisted by a guy named Seiji Yoshimura, who is 58. And Mr. Yoshimura had dug the brewery sign out of the rubble. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, Seiji Yoshimura or Yoshimura-san, he heads a group called the Human Shield Kobe, uh, which is a, uh, NGO that is dedicated to reconstruction assistance in Japan and, uh, overseas. Mm. And he actually lives in Shinanomachi, uh, which is a town in uh, Nagano Prefecture, northern Nagano. Okay. And uh, he just took off to Ishikawa right after the uh, the quake started, um, which would be, be, the, be the main quake and the aftershocks. Right, right. And we basically followed him around. When we arrived, he was uh, he brought all these heavy machinery from Nagano with him. Mm. Uh, he went through Toyama. The roads were really, really messed up, so it took him quite a while. And I think he finally arrived in uh, Wajima on January 3rd. He makes it a point to arrive before the uh, crucial 72-hour period uh, runs up. Okay. This is, this is the time where uh, disaster victims underneath collapsed homes and buildings uh, could potentially survive. After the window uh, shuts, the rate of survival uh, drops significant, significantly. Right, right. <laughs> so he wanted to get up there before that time was up. And he got there, and uh, his, so far I think he uh, helped, um, what's a nice way to put it, he helped pull out three uh, bodies from the rubble. Um okay. Uh, an old lady and an old man and another old lady, I think. Um, and when we visited, he was uh, using an excavator. There's a car inside. It was a mangled garage shutter. Mm. The house itself was sort of halfway demolished, and there was a, a car inside the uh, the garage. The sake brewer's friend's car, actually. Okay. Oshimura-san and his crew of volunteers from all over Japan, actually, uh, they were using these heavy machinery to sort of pull out the mangled garage shutter right. so they can access it directly. You can see this on the video, actually, that uh, Dave took. Uh-huh. Um, and they successfully got the car out. And then he took us on a tour of uh, the streets and alleys that uh, he and his crew helped uh, clear out. And uh, so it's a complete disaster zone. It's like uh, it's like after a war or something, especially the morning market, um, which uh, suffered heavy fires. Mm. Um, it's like a scene from, I don't know, it's very... Uh, Apocalyptic. Uh, apocalyptic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So does Mr. Yoshimura, like, does he just kind of travel around the city and then if he sees a problem, he solves it? Or or do people summon him? Like, how does he work? So he's been doing this for decades now, right? I, th- uh. I think I think the uh, the trigger was the 1995 Hanshin earthquake where he went to volunteer. I experienced the Hanshin Awaji earthquake in 1995, January 17th. I'm arriving in the Kobe it's four days already, but it's too late. So I'm bit regret about uh, it. It's so, so everything is gone. Then this time I very fear it's like Kobe again. Mm, I cannot forget the, the smell of the fire areas and crying the voice and everything. So ever since then, he's been, uh, he, he needs to be the first responder, right? Huh. So he goes up to the disaster zone. Um, what he does is typically he would talk to uh, local municipal uh, officials, uh, SDF personnel, um, police, uh, the fire department, mm-hmm. and gather information and uh, figure out, you know, which areas need hardcore heavy machinery to go, go in to clear out. 
Yeah. So it's a coordinated effort. He doesn't. He just doesn't go there and like you know randomly finds a house and like okay let's go. Uh-huh. He, he digs for information. He uh, collaborates with different um, uh, both official and unofficial um, entities and uh, tries to sort of figure out you know which areas or which people need the most help. Right. Speaking of the community kind of coming together. One other person I want to single out from your story was Midori Kawabata. Tell us a little about her. Right. So we bumped into her in front of, uh, I think that was Sanno Elementary School. It was an evacuation center in the city of Nanao. And uh, I mentioned I come from the Japan Times and something rang a bell. And apparently yeah. <laughs> she already met one of our reporters who uh, went up there. Before. I think it's Karin. Oh, right. Okay. You might want to double check with her. Yeah. But, uh, so she knew the Japan Times. And then <laughs> and suddenly she said, like, okay, just follow me. You know, I'll, I'm going to take you to this uh, huge evacuation center called the uh, Sun Life Plaza. So we followed her on her car and uh, she took us there, uh, which initially had 800 people evacuated there, I think. Now okay. it's down to 300 or so. So she's this uh, extremely genki uh, middle-aged lady, um, very talkative, and her family owns a local fish shop. She also uh, runs an online uh, sashimi or uh, fish delivery service. Mm. She's been all over the place, all over Nanao to uh, evacuation centers, um, school, city halls, um, to uh, deliver you know, adult diapers, perhaps, for uh, the mm. elderly evacuees, um, vegetables, um, fish, because she comes from a fish shop. Yep. And she was really, really kind. And, you know, going back to that sense of community I mentioned before, um, Kawabata-san would be, you know, a, a good example. Um, you know, she's uh, suffered as well, um, but she's doing his best to sort of uh, go around and help people out. And, you know, this is what happens during disasters in Japan and elsewhere, too. I think people sort of just stand up and uh, do what they can for their uh, own community and their neighbors and their friends and their family. And it's her who gives you the quote that ends up becoming the headline for your story, yeah? Right. So she said there's this old saying that's been handed down in the region. Noto wa yasashi ya tsuchima demo. And we translated that in English as uh, noto is kind, uh, right down to its soil. I actually like the English translation because soil sounds like soul. So you kind of get that image in your head when you hear it. Yeah, that's true. Kawabata-san was telling me this and her you could see that her eyes were welling up when she said it. But she said that the people of Noto are kind and they help each other out and uh, they're going to persevere. Well, Alex, thank you for coming on Deep Dive to share your experience with us. Thanks, Sean. My thanks to Alex, Karin, and Jordan for sharing their experiences on this week's podcast. With me now is Dave Cortez. Dave, you went up to Noto with Alex. Had you ever been to a disaster zone before? No, no, I never have. To be honest with you, I didn't think it was going to be a part of my journalistic career. Uh. But, um, you know, these things happen and you have to be ready. I was trying to make sure that I kept the fact that there were deaths in the forefront of my mind. Mm. Because you have all of these journalistic needs you need to check off. Do this right, do that right, get this shot, get this audio. And it can be easy, I think, to forget that it is a disaster zone. Right. That was something I tried to make sure I was grounded in. What image would you say you would remember most from being up there? Like what struck you as being something you didn't expect, but you saw it while you were there? I'm going to give you two. I think seeing the side of a mountain come off on television Mm. is one kind of surreal image. But when you actually look at the aftermath and you see it in front of you on the street, you kind of realize the destructive force of nature in a different way than a helicopter camera might be able to catch. Right. But the second one, I think lots of people see images of collapsed houses on television. And when you go see one in real life, that's also another step up, like similar to the landslides. 
But then there's a third layer when you see two feet of snow on top of it. Uh-huh. That made me think, okay, so these people had their New Year's completely ruined. There's death, like I said. And then Mother Nature brings a massive snowstorm. And it kind of just made me even more kind of sick about like who might be trapped in their homes, who might be now having to deal with another, not a disaster, but another natural situation like freezing yeah. because rescue personnel haven't gotten to you. So I think that kind of shook me more than anything. Right. Well, another team went up to the area too, and we'll put links to our coverage in the show notes. That includes the articles and the video that you shot, Dave. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the Japan Times subscribers out there. It's because of your support that we are able to get teams into disaster zones and hopefully provide reporting that you all appreciate. The recovery in Noto and the broader area will likely take a few years, so we look forward to providing you updates on how that progresses. As of this week, uh, around 250 junior high school students from the hard-hit city of Wajima had to leave their families to continue their studies in the southern Ishikawa city of Hakusan. Many schools in Noto became evacuation centers after the quake and some were damaged, so the students will stay at prefectural lodging facilities so that they can prepare for end-of-year exams. And authorities are introducing measures to keep visiting foreign technical trainees to continue working in Japan, even if the companies they were assigned to go out of business due to the recent disaster. The Immigration Services Agency said foreign trainees in 47 municipalities in Niigata, Toyama, Ishikawa, and Fukui prefectures will be able to work at places not designated under their programs. Deep Dive from the Japan Times is produced by Dave Cortez. Our outgoing music is by Oscar Boyd, and our theme music is by the Japanese musician 4L. I'm Sean McKenna, Potsukare-sama. Thank you.